Good day and welcome to the inaugural Oil Ground Up podcast presented by Clear Commodity Network, hosted by me, Tony Greer. Today, my guest will be Rory Johnston, founder of Commodity Context. We had a great conversation discussing the trends and dynamics from last year's energy market, the SPR debate, and why WTI crude oil will be the main story in 2023 rather than the refiners. Let's get right into my conversation with Rory. What's happening, good people? Welcome to the Oil Ground Up podcast. This is Tony Greer. I'm going to be your host. We're going to have a conversation today with a good friend of mine in the market, Rory Johnson, founder of Commodity Context. Rory, how are you doing today? Thanks so much for having me on this inaugural podcast, Tony. Yeah, I wanted to have somebody that's well-versed in the markets. I wanted to have a true professional. I wanted to have somebody that I've had conversations on Twitter with and that I'm familiar with. So let's let it rip. Fantastic. Let's do this. Yeah. So, you know, I like starting, uh, Rory, with just a little bit of a year in review. And I don't want to go over, you know, all the gory details, but just to kind of rekindle some of the stories um, that we just waded through last year, you know, and I'm just going to set it up where, you know, we had the Biden administration selling the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. We had OPEC trying to tighten output into a slowing economy. We had the Russia story, the China demand story, as you know, the Russia, excuse me, sanction story, the China demand story that just doesn't seem to go away. And the performance in the energy sector was unbelievable, right? Oil, the commodity was up 7%, but E&P was up 58% as measured by XLE. XOP, which includes a lot of natural gas, was up 42% on the year. And names like Marathon Petroleum and Valero um, jumped out of the gym with gains of like 70 and 80% on the year because the refining margins were so strong. So that's the kind of market that we just waded through last year. We've just, uh, at last sale, Rory, we're printing 8086. And I'd love to hear your stream of consciousness on what we saw last year and then how it leads into this year. Yeah. So I've been in the industry for just about over a decade now. And last year, so 2022, was just like indisputably one for the record books. The, you know, my year in review, I called it There and Back Again, a barrel's tale, kind of like a hobbit take. Yeah. And it's because we really went like, we went, we started the year under $80 Brent, went as high, went, went like a, to 130 plus, intraday almost 140, and then ended the year more or less exactly where we began. And this is a year that I think people, myself included, I think we're reasonably confident that we were going to see fresh all-time highs again for crude. You know, people were talking, this is the year we're finally going to see $200 plus or, you know, or more. And I think looking at some of those, I think, you know, those four things that you identified, so Russia, China, SPR, and OPEC, and then add in to that the kind of refining crisis that I think was even in many ways more acute that you were mentioning in the context of Valero at all. I think all of that played in in a way that was extraordinarily hard to track in real time. And I think caught people, it, it rugged everyone. And I think the, you know, and I think understanding why I think is really important because 
I think a lot of people will say, oh, okay, it was all speculation. You know, this wasn't justified. This was just volatility for volatility's sake. But I think people underappreciate how fundamentally justified that speculative volatility was. And just to use two line items in, you know, these global supply demand balance models that we that we build and we we track and we compare, um, normally for most of my career, people would spend, you know, all of their time maybe debating, you know, 300, 500,000 barrels a day here or there. And the balances, these were big numbers. In the context of 2022, we thought we were going to lose 3 million barrels a day of Russian supply from sanctions as of March. That was for officially from the IEA's forecast. At the same time, we didn't expect, at least no one that I knew of, expected that you were going to see massively draconian COVID zero lockdowns uh, starting basically in April of that year, right after that. So instead of having you know, a 3 million barrel a day supply loss from China, from Russia, and then flat Chinese demand, we had flat Russian production and 2 million barrels a day of demand lost in China. That's a 5 million barrel a day intra-year swing in expected balances. That is, you know, if those forecasts had gone to plan, if we had lost that, if we had a 5 million barrel a day deficit in the market, as many people expected in, you know, at the end of Q1, beginning of Q2, yeah, $200 a barrel would have been, you know, a low ballpark for where we could have gotten. And I think that kind of massive swing, I think, justifies everything we saw and then some. Yeah, it's a great point. It's a great point. You know, it was, um, to me, the Russia invasion last year was sort of a great out for traders. If you were long oil and playing from the long side, you know, you look at it and you're like, wow, we just had, we've been running. Now we have this event that spikes volatility. Nobody knows what's going to happen next. You get another 15% tacked onto the price. And it was very easy for a trader to say, okay, let's clean up the oil trade here if you were in it. Right. And that's not to be too much of a Monday morning quarterback either, but because you like to sell into those volatile events like that. Right. So from there, it became the battle of OPEC and SPR. Right. Yep. And it was I think SP, the SPR release to me was I mean, it turned out to be one of the more savvy political moves that I've seen. I mean, it, it definitely took over the five dollar gas theme and turned it into, oh, no, no, no. We have plenty of oil, whether that was true or not. That, should, you know, the narrative became that because the oil was coming out of the SPR now. Yeah. So all of a sudden we sourced it. Right. We found a source. Here it is. And we're going to spill it out into the markets. And I think that that actually took OPEC by surprise, quite honestly, that the Biden administration would use such a direct political tool to, you know, get the machinations of the global oil market to go their way ahead of elections. Right. So that happened to pan out. But oil sort of went down begrudgingly to me. Right. It, it fought its way down. Markets were still backwardated for a lot of the time. Um Market the oil market rallied back into the 90s no less than three times last quarter, you know, and it looked like it could go back to the hundred uh hundred dollar area and just could muster it. So now we've settled off in that low uh backed off to the lows of $70, and everything feels really controlled about the oil market. You know, it didn't seem you know, you had chances to trade it from the long side, from the short side, or whatever you wanted, but it looks like it's building a technical base now. And I feel like with everybody thinking recession, the risk is to the upside. What do you think of that, Rory? Yeah, I think that's probably true. And I think the way the market finds itself on a fundamental basis is 
we're likely flirting with the edge of kind right on the edge of balance kind of little oversupplied one month a little undersupplied the next month nothing gangbusters not nothing definitively directional and i think but we also find us ourselves in that balance point with overall very very low visible commercial inventories um so we have this position where the markets are kind of like loosey ish but with inventories outside of china at least that are very 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 low by most uh, metrics down to where kind of that we were in that 2010 to 2014 level where, you know, prices were $100 and more. And that was kind of the way it was going to be. So we really don't have any commercial OECD inventory cushion like we did before. So I think that's supporting an overall higher price level. But the weird thing, and as you noted, much of the forward, much of the futures curve for crude is still backward dated. Yeah. But- which is funny because it's this funny curve where you have the majority of the curve backwardated, but theoretically the highest information months at the front, they kind of keep bouncing back and forth to contango. And right now on my screen, you know, prompt Brent is trading at a contango of 20 cents, which isn't a strong market, but at the same time, the spread between, you know, June 23 and December 23 is backwardated. So it's this very funny kind of like for me, the way that this is looking is you have traders, investors coming back into the market, expressing their view through like steepener trades, but avoiding the very front months of the of the curve because, well, that's kind of a bit of a crapshoot uh, yeah. and was, is going to flip back and forth into contango based on this kind of oversupply in the market. And it's not just the futures curve. You also have, you know, the, the weekly Brent contracts for difference uh, on the physical level that are also showing contango in these kind of prompt near-term markets. So I think it's this very, very funny market that we find ourselves in. So it's, you know, the narrative and the data just kind of constantly crisscrosses each other in both directions. Yeah, that's a great point, Rory. It really does. And I wanted to just, you know, touch on a point that you mentioned about the spreads backing all the way off, you know, in the front of the curve in backwardation. You know, we saw the whole calendar last year at the wides, right? The whole entire calendar was like a $12, $14 item. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and like record, record year forward backwardation. Nothing even mildly comparable historically. It was exactly. wild. And that's how, as you know, oil traders, you sit here and you're like, I mean, I'm sorry. It is pedal to the metal time, guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? One month spreads are 250. You know yeah. what I mean? Like this is historically, you know, they're usually 50 cents. Like people don't yeah. realize that. You know what I mean? So this is how dear the front of the curve has become. Um, that got turned inside out once again by the SPR release and a number of other factors. And next thing you know, the calendar is a $4 item and half of the curve is still in this kinky contango. Yeah. Right? Kinky, kinky contango is, I think, a good way to put it, honestly. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. And maybe we should make some shirts up, by the way, because I, I think that's kinky contango, I, I, that's a brand if I've ever heard one. It really is. It really is. So we just birthed a new term here. That's amazing. But, you know, what the, the thing that I can latch on to as a, a natural born oil bull and, and under these conditions, certainly, is that they backed off towards contango, but they backed off and held levels that they've held historically. Right. Yeah. So it wasn't a back off and a collapse into that one dollar, one month contango spread where now we're talking about the floating oil trade and they're getting the barges out. You know, we're not going back to that scenario anytime soon. Because if you look at WTI and across the products and their five, you know, where they are versus their five-year average inventories, we're at the bottom or below the average of the last five years. So it doesn't seem like spreads can go any more contango in the front than they already are, right? I could be wrong. Do you have any thoughts on that 
I'm, I'm enjoying I mean, this convo I, yeah. about the futures market. I think it's really relevant. Yeah, I would say, I you know, my my only rule is never say never. I could see a scenario where we completely turf the oil market this year. Yeah. You know, let's say China decides to completely backtrack and go COVID zero again, and we end up in a global recession and da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, I think, I, I do I think it's likely? No. <laughs> I think right. I think more likely the balance of risk is to the upside. And I think the balance of risk is towards a steeper curve. But I would say that Today, the prompt and kind of CFD contangos in the market are persistent. Like it's not like they're it's not like it's a flippant thing anymore. Like, like this has been a trend that we've kind of been kind of jumping back and forth now for months. Um, and I think that to me, it definitely isn't screaming kind of bull rally imminent in my mind, but like on a fundamental basis. That said, I think that there is a scenario where the curve could actually like the actual flat prices could rally. And as we've seen, they have rallied with the with prompt and contango. So I think, you know, that is, you know, people often there's always this fight between physical oil guys and financial oil guys. Right. Mm -hmm. And I I, I want I think it's a very unproductive fight. I think that, you know, anyone that follows this market knows just the pure volume of things that we don't know constantly. Um, so financial markets are great because they provide us very, very high frequency signals Unfortunately, they all also have false positives all the time. Whereas the fundamental side, you know, you're kind of reviewing months, months after the fact. I think it's useful for a kind of a positioning, you know, mindset, but it doesn't provide you a lot of kind of tactical information in the moment. So I think they need to be blended. Um, and what we're seeing right now is this, again, this market that isn't tight, but has all of these kind of underlying currents of bullishness to it. And, I, and how that market trades, I think, right now is very, very fascinating. Yeah. So my when I look at the undercurrents of bullishness that I see right now, Rory, are number one, price action is is starting to do it for me. Right. We're not we're yeah. not there yet, but at least it's showing signs of sort of liking the prices in the mid 70s, stabilizing in the mid 70s, and now at least testing the upside of the range. We're breaking through the 50-day moving average, right? Yeah. We've got headlines like China demand is expected to grow by a record or to a record, excuse me, a new record next year. And you've, like you mentioned, the reopening story. So those are the currents that make me bullish. What are the things that make you bullish in the current scenario? I think that's, I mean, I, I think you nailed it. I think, I mean, if we get China back up to kind of all-time highs, that said, I should note as well that the main thing that's a, that is typically bullish with China is the kind of pace of growth. And what we saw this morning is that, you know, in Davos, the OPEC Secretary General is talking about how China is expected to grow by half a million barrels a day this year, which is actually not gangbusters, particularly given the fact that last year was the first annual negative rate of growth for China in possibly two to three decades. It was. It was. For three right? Yeah. So exactly. It was either flat or probably down 100, 200,000 barrels a day year on year on average. Um, Chinese demand data being a whole other kind of can of worms that we can get into. We, can't but, even, we don't have an eye. It's another podcast. <laughs> exactly. um, but I, so I think that if you think about it from a pent up demand perspective, like China should in like the pre-COVID sense be growing at four or 500,000 barrels a day every year. So you'd expect if there was a negative year of growth and there's this pent up demand, 500,000 is actually kind of anemic in the scheme of things. Yeah. So I think one of the big questions we have for, you know, going forward on the demand side, the two biggest questions, like fundamentally the things that on a compounding year after year basis will determine what kind of market we find ourselves in for the past, for the next half decade is 
what is the new trend rate of annual demand growth in China? Is this something that remains kind of four or 500,000 barrels a day, or does it drop to kind of two to three or, or less? And on the other side of it is what is the trend rate of kind of U.S. liquids demand or liquid supply growth? You know, in 2018, with, with prices around $60 Brent, between crude and NGLs and everything in between, you, you, you grew almost 2 million barrels a day year on year in 2018 on average, which was about 500,000 barrels a day more than global demand growth. So th- no wonder through that whole period, crude could never make it that far above 50, 60 bucks because the wave of U.S. supply was insurmountable. But now it'll still be the largest source of annual supply growth, but probably at half that rate. So I think it's there's also a question of like, okay, so is crude growing at half a million or a million? Is chi- is Chinese demand growing at you know two or three hundred thousand or half a million? These are the numbers that you know compounded year over year are going to be the largest single line items in any global supply demand model. And then basically the residual is like, okay, where all the rest of the world goes. Mm-hmm. Um, like right now, I'm just I'm doing a piece. I'm writing up a piece right now on comparing forecasts, uh, major forecast assumptions between the major kind of public facing agencies, you know, EIA, um, OPEC, et cetera. Um, the, uh, the EIA, the, the short term energy outlook, the major one from the EIA, uh, expects to actually see OEC demand decline this year, which is actually, and I think the, which you can interpret as like building in um, some kind of recessionary theme, or at least, you know, economic malaise. It's not, it doesn't fall by a lot. I think it's like 150,000 barrels a day year over year on a total sample of about half global demand or 45 or 50 million barrels. It's not a huge amount, but I think directionally, that's very, very important because you need to make that entirely up on the no, non-OECD side. Um, and that means really China. And when you're talking only half a million barrels a day of growth from China, that again, that's not gangbusters. Mm. Um, so I think a lot of this year will be determined by like, does the world kind of slip into this economic malaise, this kind of global, you know, flirting with recession, or do you continue this not just economic recovery, but post-pandemic recovery, return to international airfare, et cetera, et cetera? There was a there was a chart that Pierre Onderon tweeted a couple a couple of weeks ago about kind of looking at oil demand, not just in terms of annual kind of annual growth, but in terms of like a trend rate. And when you think about it in a macro sense, you think about like, what's the what's the potential output of an economy? And that's kind of just a linearly growing thing, typically year over year. And then you have a recession and it drops down. And but then you jump back quickly up to that trend rate of growth or whatever that kind of longer term trend line is. If you treated oil like that, you could get really, really big demand growth because the things that are still most held back, uh, things like jet fuel, et cetera, were also the single most stable, relentlessly growing segments of oil demand year after year after year for decades. Hmm. So not only do we just need to get back to pre-pandemic jet fuel demand, but we're probably honestly like a million plus barrels a day of incremental kind of opportunity cost over that period. If you got back to that level, again, it'd be very, very hard in the current you know, permutation of the market on the supply side to satisfy that level of demand. Mm-hmm. So it really becomes like your first question is where where goeth demand? And then after that, if not for you know, whatever your you know, call on US supply growth is, then you talk about like where are the other areas of global supply? And I actually tweeted yesterday that there really aren't many. Like there aren't a ton of, of actual growth areas for supply in the world right now. You've got 
it's all also very America's dominated, which is very interesting, which is also a kind of a change. But you've got U.S., which even at half its previous pace of growth, it will still lead the world consistently uh, unless something goes catastrophically wrong in, in, in like the Permian. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, you've got offshore uh, Guyana, uh, which is going to be it's not gangbusters. But again, two, three hundred thousand in, in some years, it's, it's, it's going to matter. Same with Brazil, also offshore, very similar kind of floating offshore production uh, and offloading vessel kind of techniques. Uh, some brownfield expansion from Canada and the oil sands, you know, pipelines willing. We're hoping to get, I'm in Toronto, and we're hoping to get uh, the Trans Mountain expansion line uh, finished either at the end of this year or the beginning of next year. But beyond that, like, there's not a huge amount of other areas of, of, of possible supply growth. We're going to need to see more from UAE and Saudi over the next you know, half decade. But these are reasonably slow moving in the scheme of things. Um, so really, like, where else does the supply come from? There's not a ton of area. So that's why, like, in the next little while, demand is going to play front and center with which kind of market we find ourselves in trying to balance. And then the price is going to go where it's going to go. Yeah, that's fair. So while we while we kind of segued over to demand question, I want to ask you if you feel uh, so we GDP has been negative for two quarters. Right. Technically, we're already in a recession. The administration doesn't want to admit it, whatever. I feel like market forecasts are for a far over, uh, you know, forecasts are way overblown for a recession that I don't think is going to be as steep as the market thinks. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think the market calls are in line for another couple of negative quarters? Do you think this is something we can bounce out of? And either way, is this necessarily a dividend gasoline demand? I think that's, I think the, the last question I think is, is the thing that I've been focusing more on, which is even if we do get an economic slowdown, how much does that, because you're running up against kind of two competing trends here. You have this economic deceleration, but at the same time, you still have this kind of global reopening, you know, yeah. you know pent up demand story. So yeah. I think if, you know, even if you did get a recession, even a kind of a moderate to severe one, I think the the physical demand losses will be less pronounced. I think the bigger risk to crude is going to be in its kind of status as a risk asset. Yeah. If the market kind of sells off with it, then yeah, I think you get, in, get into a scenario where the floor falls out of crude. I think it's it's not hard to imagine. That said, I do think that, you know, all that does, all else equal, is then pushes some of that price pressure further down the line because that's going to have depressive effects on, kind of any kind of nascent supply response that we're expecting as well, which is the same, you know, I was saying this is back in the context of when, you know, the Federal Reserve was, you know, really started, uh, you know, doubling down on like a tightening bias this past summer. Um, you know, they were talking and at that stage, the focus, and, you know, actually this is where we can kind of dip into a little bit of the SPR stuff as well, is at that stage in the summer, everyone was focused on headline CPI growth, worried about this unmooring of inflation expectations, and particularly worried about the prices that consumers were seeing at the pump. Mm-hmm. And that was not only because we had like a $120, $130 a barrel you know, price of crude, but we also had a $50, $60 crack spread on gasoline. So the actual you know, manifestation that, that consumers were seeing at the pumps was, was, almost was already almost $200 a barrel uh, crude equivalent. Uh, basis, you know, based on where you know cracks would normally be. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's the market that the, that the Fed was trying to stamp out. But in the process, 
you know, it also stamped out equity markets. And my the, my thesis I've been working on and, and are working off of, and I think a lot of people disagree exactly what will eventually get U.S. shale growing at a faster pace again. Um, there are, you know, voluminous physical constraints and everything else. But I do think that the major, the major overarching theme is this cash flow discipline, a lack of investor appetite for growth, um, you know, uh, nightmares of the you know decade prior to COVID, half a trillion dollars of capital evaporated, that kind of stuff. Um, and I think that the only way you're really going to get investor approval for growth again is if they're made whole, which means higher equity prices. And I don't think that the Fed tightening and, and, and nuking risk sentiment like they did was particularly helpful for getting supply onto the market like you did. Now, the Fed got lucky because not only did crude prices fall off, great. More importantly, uh, gasoline crack spreads from fell from 50, 60 bucks back down to like 10. Yeah. So that, I think, was a much bigger deal for the majority of particularly consumer sentiment around prices. Now, diesel and kind of distillates remained hella lofty, you know, still around 40 to 60 bucks, depending on depending on the benchmark uh, for a crack spread. So that the industrial side of, of the economy is still feeling that, you know, viciously. But consumers, much less so. And I think, and, and you know, I, I was saying that we could pivot here to talking about the SPR as well. And I think that, and again, I think I've been recently, you know, kind of anathema to the, most of people in, in this industry. I'm actually fairly sympathetic to the initial impetus of the SPR release. And that, like I like was saying at the very beginning, the in March and April, the I think the consensus view was that the market was staring down upwards of a 5 million barrel a day deficit in the market. That is historic. That it, We've never seen that before. That's wild. That if, if that doesn't justify an SPR release, I don't know what kind of market environment does. Well, or now, I, you know, an SPR release or a pipeline connection or the ability to drill on, you know, on government land or, you know, any one of the measures that the administration could lift to let oil flow again. But I agree totally. with you. That was that, that's another option was the SPR as well. Totally. But by, I think where the SPR underwhelmed, at least my hopes and dreams, is that Pretty quickly, by July, when the SPR was actually releasing around its full tilt, over a million barrels a day. And again, just for perspective, I think people also think, I saw a lot of this talk of like, oh, well, the SPR, they're only releasing, you know, you know, a million barrels a day or whatever. That's in a market of 100 million. That means nothing. That is not how oil markets clear, which you, which you well know. It's always on the margin. It's always the incremental imbalance. So a million barrels a day, it's like the United States government decided to turn on a new, a new you know, Oman. Like, you know, that's a lot of oil. They in the decided to turn on, curve. right. They decided to unload the strategic reserve rather than tapping the local E&P companies to say, drill more oil. Right. I mean, it was very clear what they did. You know what I mean? It was the anti-capitalist, anti-fossil fuel thing to do. We've got this pile of oil sitting here or we've got these producers over here. Right. Naturally, they're going to spill the pile of oil. But what I didn't like about it was a lot of the oil that they sold was heavy, sour, crude. Right. They booked out several million barrels in almost a direct sale to China, like in the low 60s. And then you go and read that China has been literally expanding their strategic petroleum reserve hand over fist. So it just seemed like it was a little bit politically too convenient for us to say, yeah, you know what? We're selling our oil and here comes two million barrels your way at sixty seven dollars. And don't worry about it. We're going to be selling more of this stuff. Right. And so it's a little bit wacky, that dynamic that went on. That that bothered me a lot, Rory. I'll be honest with you. 
see, I I'll, I'll push back here. This it, it'll be it'll be a fun fun please, friendly pushback. Please. But I think the the there's a couple things here. One, I think that China and the United States are in vastly different positions vis-a-vis their relative kind of petroleum security. Um, I think China today looks a lot more like when the SPR was initially established kind of in the 70s and 80s, whereas the United States was producing less and less oil. It was it was depending more and more on kind of insecure supplies from OPEC and the Gulf and everywhere else. I think now the U.S. is a net petroleum exporter. And when it comes to, you know, your largest source of imported supply, well, that's from us friendly Canadians. Not exact. And and if anything, we're actually overly dependent on U.S. demand because all of our pipelines are literally locked in. That's like definitional energy security for my mind. So one thing I would say on the U.S. versus Chinese kind of relative utility of an SPR. China, I think, is much more justified in being very freaked out of their kind of relative insecurity. On the U.S. side, the one pushback I'll make against this idea that this was a non-strategic use of the reserve is that when it comes, when it really comes to like the strategic kind of end game of what the kind of scenario that would be, that would be the ultimate holdout for an SPR release, I'm trying to imagine what that looks like. And in a way that doesn't, that wouldn't benefit from trying to be proactive with it. And if we think about it as a military asset, which I, 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 I quibble with, but let's say, let, let, let's say we think of it like a very classic military kind of strategic asset. I view this more as like a forward operation that you get much more leverage for doing something proactively than kind of reacting on the back end. Mm-hmm. And I think the, my, my hope, my theoretical justification for the SPR was very, very specific. And this is again, where, the, where I do think the admin did fall off a little bit is in the execution of it. One, by the time it was going at full tilt, like I was saying, in July and into August, crude was already well past its kind of crisis peak. Uh, everyone knew that that was not the market we were looking at anymore. We weren't going to lose Russian supply, and we weren't going to have 2 million barrels a day of Chinese demand. I think at that stage, it would have been wise to stop the release. I think that's the first, first and foremost. I think in the first half of the release, I think it was justified. The second half, I think, was unjustified. The other thing here is that I think that the way that you are proactive with it is the the problem for the for the administration and even for the US EMPs in my mind was twofold. One, you had really really high spot prices which were driving inflation, which were driving all of this consumer pain, but weren't sufficiently incentivizing US EMPs to produce because I think many of them rightfully say, well, sure, but look at how backwardated the curve is. If we wanted to hedge any of this production out, we're taking a $25 ding to kind of any barrels we're going to get. So my hope would be that you sell heavy into the liquid spot market, hopefully bring that down, which they did, and simultaneously buy barrels back on a forward basis. And this is one thing that they did do, and I really like, is they changed the rulemaking procedure for how they can purchase crude. Historically, they were only allowed to buy what were called indexed barrels, which you basically contract and that when the barrels are delivered, it's basically indexed to whatever spot price is on delivery. So you really can't take a position in the market. You can't really hedge. But what they change is allowing now for what they call fixed priced forward contracting. So you can agree to a price now, theoretically will be governed broadly by the shape of the curve. And you say, okay, do that. And then the people that sell those barrels to the government should then hedge them in the futures market, which will bring up the curve. So my hope is that it's kind of a flattening trade, which all else equals should increase. And again, 
we can, I think, both fundamentally agree that the forward curve is not the market's forecast, but the majority of the market and people in it actually use it as a forecast. Particularly, I, I remember I used to deal with a lot with equity research departments. They wanted to be uh, differentiated against their competition on their equity research, not their commodity research. So what they would do is they would have their equity models and they would basically plug in the forward curve. So if you had a flatter forward curve, what that actually does is it's a direct kind of uh, transmission of that forward curve into kind of discounted cash flows and thus equity prices and kind of and kind of uh, you know targets there. So that is my hopeful way it goes. Now that's we haven't seen that it didn't happen uh, so far. We have actually seen the first attempted forward fixed price purchase. This was going to be scheduled for February. We found out about a week and a half ago that that failed. Uh, but this is, again, this is a learning opportunity. I think the USSPR for a long time never did any of this. I, I, one thing I will say about the Biden administration, for good or ill, uh, and how it was executed, I am happy with the fact that the administration has thought about this asset in a different way. Uh, it's been the same thing, un an unchanging, basically, pile of crude in the ground for three, four decades. Yeah. And I do think that we can do more with it, but... Unfortunately, I think for it to really reach that potential, it needs to have more and more independence. Uh, Congress is basically treated as a piggy bank. All these all these mandated sales to try and like I would say the mandated sales and the congressional piggybacking is far more a kind of erosion of the strategic value of the reserve than this particular emergency release. Now we can we can quibble over what they're going to do from here and whether they manage to do a refill everything else. But I would say that that is. I would, I would give them a B <laughs> thus far. Yeah, no, that's fair. I can live with that. Uh, you know, you make, you point out very fair points about, um, you know, some of the more inner dynamics of how that SPR release went. And I'm certainly not going to push back against those because it makes perfect sense. So where do you think that you, you landed though, right on my next question, which is, all right, what, you know, what's the SPR story from here? Do you think that this administration dares go on the record as buying oil back at any price, which I'm not sure. What are your thoughts? What do you think? Do they buy it back? Do they not buy it back? Do they sell more? It's really a wild card right now, isn't it? Yeah, I would say that first thing I would say is I think they're going to buy some back to prove that they're going to buy some back. Mm -hmm. I think that this year we're probably going to see ballpark kind of like five to 10 million barrels purchased for the reserve but more as a pilot. And again, I think what we saw with that th that now failed kind of 3 million barrel pilot that was supposed to be delivered in February, we now know that there are issues uh, with the way that that kind of solicitation was handled. Um, and I think there are learnings from that. So I think first things first, got to learn how to do it. Mm. Second, however, is I don't think that they need, they definitely don't need to refill all of it for two reasons. First, Part of what they did in the latest omnibus bill is they canceled about 140 million barrels of congressionally mandated sales uh, that were going to take place between 2024 and 2027. So that right there already, quote, refills all else equal a bunch of the crew that was taken. And I think how they justified that was actually smart because they basically like you basically took sales that were going to be completely market agnostic and going to be just for congressional purposes. And they traded that for the exchange that already took place. So the so Congress basically took some of the money back from, and it was like $11 billion or so, from the sales that had taken place last year. And they basically said, that's our money. You don't need to sell any more crude, at least for that period. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that part of the value of the SPR in my mind 
is not just as a seller of last resort, but also a buyer of last resort. And to be a buyer of last resort, you need spare capacity in the reserve. I think another failure, you did see some purchases of crude at the bottom of the COVID market in 2020, but not nearly as much. In, 20, in April 2020, and honestly, March and May and June and everywhere in between, the SVR should have been full bore buying. No questions. Buying, the market was in hella backwardation. Anytime any crude traders or hedge funds can justify a floating storage kind of super contango trade, the SPR should be the most aggressive buyer in the market by a landslide. And I think, and I think that is something that we haven't seen as well because of the politicking and 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 to the to the detriment of progressive politicians, there was pushback against supporting the oil industry during that period. And I think that again was a democratic failure. Mm-hmm. Um, also a Republican failure that they didn't push harder on it in that moment. It didn't seem very popular for anyone. But I think that that's the kind of thing that, and in my ideal world, a more independent, call it Federal Reserve of Oil or something equivalent, that is something that I think could be more uh, effective. Um, and I think, again, the goal there should be primarily to reduce volatility at the front of the curve. I think everything, I think that should be the main purpose of the SPR in my mind. And it should only be stepping in. I mean, even right now, like, I mean, again, I think that they should buy to prove they're going to buy because they think there's justified skepticism in the market that they will. And they've said they're going to. So I think they've locked themselves in for that for this year. At what, but, price? At what price? I think so. I think that's the good question. For me, at this stage, I think the price is less important. I think it's proving that they're going to do it. Ideally, I wouldn't say that this is the market they should be buying in. This isn't, this isn't a, like, like we were saying, it's slightly oversupplied the front of the curve, but it's not a super contangled market. Right. Like I don't think this is the, I think this is the kind of market where you have ample commercial inventory system right. to deal with inventory back and forth in this kind of market. I think what you see in super contangled markets is basically when the commercial, mar- commercial inventory space gets completely tapped out. That's where it should step in and basically be the biggest, the biggest buyer in the market. But right now, yeah, I would say I would say it should be more based on curve shape than flat price. Um, that would be my answer to the kind of which particular price. But you know, for them, they've said sixty-seven to seventy-two. That's out in the market. If we fall back towards that level on some kind of macro sell-off, yeah, they should definitely be buying in that in that range. Now, all right. So what? It, now, my point is, uh, so say we don't get to that price, is that yeah. you know, so they're not going to ch- they're not going to chase the oil market at any level, I can't imagine that they say, okay, we're going to buy it up here in the nineties or God forbid up here above a hundred where they really look like idiots after selling it at 70 and 80 and 85 and 90. Right. Yeah. I would say, I would say that's, I think that's a fair criticism. And I think that in my last piece on the SPR, I kind of wrote about how, like I was writing about this, you know, this failed uh, solicitation for the February delivery and about this omnibus changeover with the mandated sales. But um, I kind of note like this isn't like a time independent window here. Like 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 the timing is everything. Uh, and like we were saying, most of the risks of the market are tilted to the upside. So they better get working quickly in order to secure those barrels at a lowish price to prove they're going to do it. Otherwise, I do think it's like, I don't think it would be ideal if they have to buy at 100, but I think that the value, the actual delta on the accounting value of the crude is less important for these sales than them figuring out how to do it effectively 
and sending the signal to the market that they are committed to kind of maintenance of the reserve mm-hmm. and that this is an important thing. It's not just a one directional play for them. Yeah, it's going to be difficult for them to handle it that way because they're so politically bent, right? Like there would have, the smart thing would have been, you know, if you made the sales in the 90s and 80s, if you wanted to buy it back, buy it back in the 70s, right? If you're going to show that you're going to handle this thing a little bit more aggressively and, you know, like if they were going to go about handling it the way you said, where there was sort of like an American OPEC dealer that you know, <laughs> that says that looks at the market rationally and says, well, it's massively oversupplied now. Now I'm going to be the buyer, right? And yeah. now there's a shortage in the front end and the steep is, and the curve is, you know, up a rope. Well, we're a seller now. You know, that that makes total sense to me. And I hadn't heard um, anybody really voice that approach, um, which is I'm glad well, I'm glad now to hear it, especially <laughs> on my podcast. I like to I like to put myself right in the middle. <laughs> yeah, I love, it. I love it, Rory. Well, where do we? Um, let's take it to the um, a little bit back to the refiner conversation, yeah. if we can. Just as you said, you know that was kind of the tip of the spear last year um, with those stocks just literally jumping out of gym. I mean, people don't appreciate it when you know you talk about an oil stock that was up eighty percent last year, like Marathon Petroleum, and you say, yeah, that's in a year the S and P was down fifteen percent. Could you could you imagine if they were buying stocks last year? You know, no, I mean, yeah, it it, it was a crazy market, and I think anyone that thought that the crude market, the upstream market, was crazy, like downstream, blew it out of the water. Like for my end, again, my, for my entire career, refining was boring. Yeah, like, yeah, no, the exactly. The, the, boring. The crack spread was like a five dollar item, you know, for the three two ones crack spread, and it never moved. Right, it was five bit at seven, and yeah, 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 yeah. Like fifteen goes to twenty, back down. Like it's like it's it's it was essentially yeah, yeah. It was like this range. Whereas now, like you know, diesel went from twenty bucks to sixty or seventy bucks crack spread at the peak. I think like it was in New York Harbor. There was a crazy, yeah. crazy crack spread. Yep. Like. So this is wild. And I think what happened, um, and I wrote a bunch about this uh, at commoditycontext.com, but the, the, I called it this kind of this uh, the collapsed bridge thesis. So like I was saying, refining has been really boring for a very, very long time. Um, it was uneventful. It was slow moving. People knew that where refiners were coming, when they were coming online, they knew that there was a lot of pressure from new advanced refineries in Asia and the Middle East and Africa that were coming on and pressing down and kind of competing, uh, you know, depressing these these cracks for these margins. Um, at the same time, you had ever mounting environmental regulatory burden on refineries in the West that made it very very unattractive to you know expand kind of even or, or even uh, you know maintain their facilities. So most of these you know facilities in the West were looking to shut down at some point. Um, particularly because you knew that all this new stuff was coming online. Then COVID happened, you completely blew up the product market, even more in some ways than the crude market. Um, And a lot of these refineries either had to kind of invest $100 million to keep these facilities open through an uncertain demand collapse window when they were probably planning on closing in two years anyway. So they said, why not just close? And a lot of them did. You had something like 3 million barrels a day of refinery capacity globally that shut down in, in 2020 versus, I think, an only expectation for less than half a million barrels uh, prior to COVID during that period. At the same time, a bunch of the refineries that were supposed to come online during 2020 and 2021 didn't come online because of, you know, no one was traveling. So you couldn't get staff places. You know, you had COVID bottlenecks on all of this steel and other equipment, et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of talk, this is this like collapse bridge. So you had 
you know, uh, the current fleet shrunk faster than expected and all the additions were slower than expected. So you had this massive hole that opened up in the middle. Yeah. Now, what was unique about this was that it didn't affect all products simultaneously. And while at first you did see it in gasoline in the summer of, of uh, kind of 2022, for the majority of the past year, this has been entirely a middle distillate story. So that's mostly uh, diesel, gas oil, and jet fuel to, a, to some degree as well, because it blends in. Um, the rest, uh, so that was hyper, hyper tight, huge crack spreads, massive margins, massive refining uh, margins. Um, but at the same time, all the rest of the products in the refinery mix were crap. <laughs> like They were super, super oversupplied. And a big part of that was that a lot of the refineries that jumped in to kind of satisfy that middle distillate crack spread, that, that huge hole that it opened, were things like super unsophisticated or low complexity refineries in Mexico or other areas that don't historically run that hot. And when they do run that hot, because they lack the complexity of particularly transforming a lot of those um, you know, spin-off waste fuels like residual fuel oil, they can't transform. They don't have the cokers for it. So what you what you do is you basically, you're trying to pump out a bunch of diesel and you pump out a bunch of propane, naphtha, you know, heavy fuel oil into markets that are already glutted and depressed. So that completely threw those products, you know, massive, massive negative crack spreads or, or implied, you know, every barrel you produce, you're losing, I think, for fuel oil, it was like every barrel of fuel oil you produce, you lost 40 bucks. <laughs> like it was crazy. Um, but that also had an effect on a bunch of the relative crude quality values to the market. So what you did, it put a huge premium on light sweet crudes that had a higher kind of natural uh, yield of these higher value fuels. And heavier crudes, heavy sour crudes, like again, our Canada's main export blend is called WCS. It's a very heavy sour crude. It has a very nat, you know, high, uh, call it, um, you know, natural yield of things like heavy sulfur fuel oil. So that is why you saw differentials for Canadian crude, you know, start the year at around ten dollars under WTI and blew out all the way to less, you know, a larger discount than thirty dollars under WTI as of September and October. Um, and I think that, so this refining market is also throwing the crude market into disarray in really ways that I don't think anyone, you know, in recent history has experienced. Nope. Uh, so it's been this fascinating, the whole kind of like, you know, like, uh, like, like tip to tail of the, of the overall oil complex got completely kind of shaken about in 2022. And we're still trying to kind of figure out where it all kind of falls out on the other side. You expect that refining margins, like that refining market will solve itself eventually, um, whether or not that's by more refineries. Again, those ones that didn't come on as quickly, it's not like they were completely canceled. They just got delayed. So those are still coming. Mm -hmm. And if we do have some economic pain this year, that's going to be predominantly felt in diesel fuel because it's going to be a shipping story. It's going to be et cetera, et cetera. And again, they're the ones facing the highest prices. So I think that will eventually moderate. And as, as the diesel market moderates, I expect that less of those kind of low complexity refiners are going to be running as hot. And you're going to have less of that spinoff byproduct fuel that's nuking those markets. So I expect that to normalize through this year. Um, but I think then you go back to this crude story of like, is there enough crude in the market to satisfy a, a recovered market? I think that becomes the, the bigger question. I think last year started as a crude story and became a refining story. Mm -hmm. I think this year is going to be the inverse. Very interesting. So how do we how do we position ourselves for this year, Rory? Is this... Um... 
you know, is this another year where you can stay long refiners and E&P and, and, and make out well come December, uh, maybe enduring a little volatility? Is this a year that you're worried about their performance because they had great years last year? Is there a reversion to the mean trade lower? Or tell me what you think about the, you know, more or less the, the equity complex of the energy world. Yeah. And my one disclaimer here is I'm not a, I'm not an investment advisor. I'm not an equity strategist, but based on all the kind of fundamental kind of yeah, you, you, know, have a, you have a crystal clear picture of the market they exactly, have exactly. view on how the companies are going to do. Exactly. Uh, I think that it would be surprising for me to see uh, a recovery, to see anywhere like the refining tightness that we saw last year. I think that that was very much a 2022 story. Um, I think for some, I mean, what you actually saw for companies like Pemex, which again was low complexity refiners, last year was actually terrible <laughs> for Pemex. It was losing money for every barrel it refined mm. uh, in a market that I think many rightfully considered one of the tightest refining markets in history. Um, so there's a bit, there was a huge kind of dispersion between uh, refineries, particularly ones like you know like Valero that have highly highly sophisticated, highly complex refineries in the West. Uh, that can transform a lot of these byproducts into higher value. You know, you can transform naphtha into gasoline and residual fuel oil and, and vacuum gas oil and diesel, et cetera. Um, that, I think, did really well. And I think that that will continue doing well for the beginning of this year, at least. But I do expect that kind of complexity premium to gradually ease off over the over the year. Um, but I do think that the kind of we, we shift back to an upstream story of more broadly kind of firmer oil prices. And I think from the perspective of, again, just to give a little shout out to Canada here, Canadian oil producers on the upstream were obviously feeling a lot of pain from that refining dislocation because of the effect it was having on things like the, like the WCS differential. Um, that, again, is something that I expect will gradually recover this year as those you know heavy sulfur fuel oil markets recover. Um, again, pipelines be willing because now we're entering into this market where like um, you know, we need another pipe in order to actually, you know, incrementally clear through the end of the year. So that could become tightness again, you know, a tight situation again. But on the quality basis, I expect that's going to ease off. Interesting. What about I want to, you know, come full circle here and kind of wrap this up with, you know, at least uh, some prognostication on the oil price over the course of the year and maybe where we end up. And this is just for conversational purposes only, Roy, yeah. just because I like to hear what people are thinking you know, as if it were you were filling out a survey and there's no gun to your head. Yeah, I would say that looking at the kind of cons the consensus forecast by all the major kind of forecasting agencies is for kind of still an overbalance and oversupplied market this year. Mm -hmm. I think that could be optimistic. If that's the case, I think that we basically tread water roughly where we're at. Uh, kind of more or less flat back and forth over the year, maybe a bit of a premium into the summer into driving season, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think, and I was saying again, that even like you were saying that while we're, while we're kind of flipping into prompt contango, we're doing so at 80 plus dollar crude. Whereas a couple of years ago, prompt contango would have been at 50. Right. Uh, so it's a very different kind of overall level of the, of the back of the curve and the kind of structure of the curve overall. Yeah. I think that if, we get a tighter market, but we, we both flip into both kind of backwardation more firmly at the front of the curve. But I think the rest of the curve begins to creep higher again as well, because I think that overall curve level is going to be more driven by this perception of inventory scarcity 
where we still do have reasonably uh, kind of limited, um, at least commercial visible inventories inside of China. There's a lot of debate about how much inventory they have in China, but I would say in, in a lot of research, I mean, again, you can treat, China's not really commercial inventory. It's not a residual function. It's an active choice that they're making to buy, which means they requires an active choice for it to sell to become supply back in the market again. So I think they could do that, but I don't think that they have to. And I think that that, again, that becomes a discretionary choice on their part and on a forecaster's part, rather than the market will enter into deficit. So therefore they'll sell. I don't think necessarily they will. So I think that becomes a market where you can have both a rising overall level of the curve and kind of backwardation return to the front of the curve. Um, whether or not we hit the kind of backwardation levels we saw this past year, I think it would be difficult to do have a replay of that type of crisis we saw. Because again, I think we're all pretty attuned and pretty familiar with Russian supply risk now. We're all, everyone's following tracker, you know, tankers, everyone's kind of doing their thing. So I think that is much less of a huge kind of, you know, sudden stop split in the forecast now. And I think that no one's realistically expecting a 3 million barrel a day loss in, in Russian supply anymore. Right. But it also seems less, it seems, you know, it didn't seem likely last year that China Chinese demand would contract year on year. It seems even less likely this year that they're going to do it. So yeah. I would say all else equal, my bias is probably slightly tighter than the mildly oversupplied markets that uh, kind of the, the EIA sees for the coming year. But I would say that my base case is something like a mild deficit mm -hmm. rather than anything kind of particularly explosive uh, that would bring us a replay of, you know, a near doubling of oil prices and then a collapse back to the end of yeah, the year. It would, it would seem to be, you know, it would seem out of the ordinary if we just have another replay of last year, right? Where, yeah, I, I, you know, fool me once, right? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then you see another invasion somewhere, you know, and so it, it would, yeah. that would be doubtful. Um, and at the same time, you know, the downside is probably somewhat limited. Um, you know, and I'm of the opinion that we've already been through two quarters of a recession, and I don't think it's going to get that much worse from here. If it does, I don't necessarily think that it has to be a disaster for gasoline demand because yeah, we've, gone, I agree. we've gone through recessions before and seen gasoline demand kind of flatten out and consolidate and then go right back onto a growth path from there. And that's when you see a real, you know, a real jolt in oil prices when you get an economic recovery. So, We'll yeah. see what happens there. I really liked your um, I really liked your argument about the SBR and how that should be actively and sort of more, you know, aggressively managed. I just think it's a really responsible thing to do that I don't know if we'll ever do here in the United States, but it is a great, great idea. I'm an aspirational guy. Yeah, yeah. I totally <laughs> like it, Rory. I totally like it. And I love I love your command of the industry in general and all of the uh, all of the um, the detail around it. Um, I want to tell, give the audience first, before we clean up the conversation, tell everybody where they can find you Yep. Um, and exactly what product you're presenting out there for us. Uh, yeah. So you can find me, most of my kind of day-to-day -day churn is on Twitter at Rory underscore Johnson. And then all of my kind of formal research can be found on at commoditycontext.com, which is hosted on Substack. Uh, and I have kind of three main products at Commodity Context. I have kind of my main thematic research pieces. I have monthly data reports that kind of try to formalize and structure all of that thematic research on an ongoing basis. And then I also have a weekly report called Oil Context Weekly that's published at the end of business every Friday, kind of giving a recap and kind of giving people a sense of where we were and kind of where we're starting the week going ahead. 
That's fantastic, Rory. It sounds like a really amazing one-stop shop for all of your energy analysis to me. And I get to see a good bit of your work and I'm a big fan. So I would encourage others to go there and check it out as well. Um, in passing and in parting, I want to ask you a question. You know, Zoltan Pozar just came out with a really interesting note that said the actions of the heads of state are more important than the actions of central banks. And I feel like that we kind of illustrated that with the way, you know, the oil price is the center of sort of, um, you know, global discourse at some level and causing, you know, we're in the middle of a couple of different energy crises, right? Like we saw in natural gas in Europe last year and in $5 gas here. And what the Federal Reserve has to do is sort of manage those moves by the politicians. Who should we be keeping an eye on if that's the case? Who should we watch most closely? Is it Xi? Is it Putin? Is it Biden? Is it Mohammed bin Salman? You know, what, what, what kind of dynamics are you looking at just to close this up for the global picture here? And who are you having your eyes the most closely on? Um, yeah, I, th I, I think Posner's right in this. I think that yeah, for the past kind of, again, the pre-COVID decade, it was a year dominated by kind of very technocratic central bank authorities. Now we're entering a period, and I think last year you could very much call it kind of like an, a, a policy-driven oil market. You had you know, you know, military policy, you had SPR policy, you had OPEC policy, you had all of these things, you know, you had COVID policy in China. I think this year coming, um, I think China will be the major question, you know, what is that demand recovery look like? Do you kind of re-stimulate the economy? Do you get back to that pre-COVID trend? Or is it just kind of getting that pre-COVID level? That's going to be a massive question. But I think more, I think, I think more broadly, I think, you know, what happens in Moscow and what happens with the war, I think is going to be hugely consequential. I think, is this something that continues the, you know, an entire other year? It seems incomprehensible that, that, that this will just be, that will be exactly where we are right now in December, but you know, it doesn't seem like we're winding down any, anytime quick. So the longer that the longer the war goes on, the, the the more pressure that will continue to mount on against Moscow, against Russia's oil industry. I think it's easy for people to remember that at the beginning of the war, Western leaders explicitly excluded Russian energy from consideration from sanction. And over a period of weeks to maybe a month, that entire position shifted as public opinion shifted against you know Russia's invasion, as you saw more and more kind of crimes against humanity committed in Ukraine, it was politically untenable not to ramp pressure. Mm. And I think if that continues, it seems like you can only get more and more and more pressure. I don't know what that next stage is going to look like because now we've sanctioned Russian seaborne crude exports as of two weeks from now, we'll have, we'll have put sanctions on Russian seaborne product exports. But from there, from there forward, it feels like that news only continues to tighten until Moscow backs off of its, you know, hopeless and inhuman war in, in Ukraine. Yeah, that's a great point. I like it. I like how you um, I like how you wrapped up Xi and wrapped up Putin. I want to ask you about one um, group that we haven't spoken much about. What about OPEC? Where are they in this whole story? Yeah, so I think OPEC has the, the story of, you know, 2020 was that they very much saved the market from the COVID disruption. Um, if it wasn't for that 9.7 million barrel a day OPEC plus cut, the market would have been, you know, far, far, far worse. Um, but yeah, I think and I think that the so not only that, uh, so that saved the market. Last year, it became a question of them trying to return those barrels to the market. 
And that is where OPEC fell, you know, very, very short. By upwards of almost half the 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 cut, they failed to return back to the market. And it was mostly because of capa- like structural capacity losses in core members like Angola and Nigeria. That said, in the latest OPEC report we saw today, those were actually the largest areas of growth and, you know, about almost 150,000 barrels a day incremental between them. So maybe we're going to start to see some of that come back. But as of right now, it seems like OPEC is is kind of attempting to manage the market from a position of relative weakness, at least at least relative to where they were prior to COVID. So I think, you know, you know. There's a lot more control. They obviously have a lot of kind of practice now with that management of market, but less and less capacity to actually push prices around to the degree they, they were before. And I think we covered everybody. I think we covered the globe. I think we covered the forecasts and uh, the players, which is really important. And we covered, most importantly, where our audience can find you, Rory. And I'm hoping that many of them will come running to you for some help with this oil market because I like the handle that you've got on it. Um, thank you very much for coming on. I'm going to be asking you once again, some point in the future to uh, come back and discuss it. And we'll see if we're right about some of the things that we'll talk, we've uh, discussed. And, um, with any luck, we'll come on several more times in the lifetime of our new, um, ground up commodity context here. So thank you very much for joining us. And until we speak again on the market, Rory, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me, Tony. This has been fantastic. Yeah, it was a great conversation. I think it was really educational. We covered a lot of ground, man. Thanks for coming on. This episode of The Oil Ground Up with Tony Greer should not be perceived as investment advice. Tony his guests here on the Oil Ground Up and the host company Clear Commodity Network are not responsible for any losses arising from any investment decisions based on the information presented. Please do your own research and speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.